Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with John Hudak, who's the author of Presidential Pork, White House Influence Over the Distribution of Federal Grants, a book that's published by Brookings Institute Press this year. John, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Heath. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Um, before we get to your book, uh, tell us about yourself. You don't have a typical academic appointment, yet you're doing a very interesting political science research. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and where you are now. Sure. So uh, my undergraduate training was at the University of Connecticut. So I'm a proud Husky and we've had a big week. I have, That's right. I have to absolutely get that in on this podcast. Um, after UConn, I went to Vanderbilt where I uh, studied political science under Dave Lewis, received my PhD in 2012. And after that, I transitioned to the Brookings Institution, where I'm a fellow in governance studies and the Center for Effective Public Management and managing editor of our center's FixGov blog. And uh, frankly, I'm a lucky guy in the sense that I have a great, uh, an absolutely great job here. And I'm able to do a lot of rigorous academic work like I would have if I had a faculty appointment, but I also get to do a lot of other neat, unique, fun things. I do a lot of media, do a lot of outreach here in Washington and uh, around the country and, frankly, around the world. And so it's not uh, the same um, uh, amount of sheer research as I would probably be doing at at an R1, but it's still quite a bit just without the luxury of um, teaching classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's a, it's an interesting place that, that you're at, and I think it shows up in the um, in the book that you've written. Um, so let's get started talking about the book. Uh, a good book so often has a good title, and and your title is is provocative in that it turns on its head one of the tried and true uh, uh, sort of phrases in American politics. So presidential pork. Um, most would believe that uh, it is just congressional pork that we have to worry about. Why also presidential pork? So, so that's an interesting place to begin. Like you said, when we think of pork, when we think of pork barrel politics, we naturally think of Congress. And uh, this book certainly doesn't undermine that, that undermine that thesis or, or the literature that we've had now for 50 years that, that is um, over and over um, again said that congressional pork is a big part of our life in the United States. But what I argue is that when we think of federal funding, we think of it in a very linear way, in a very unitary way, that there's federal funding and then there's everything else, and that federal funding is one thing. What I argue is that federal funding is actually a really dynamic beast, and there are certain types of funding which Congress has tremendous authority over the distribution of, particularly formula grants, block grants, um, and, and spending of the like. But... For a good chunk of federal spending, uh, including uh, what I study, discretionary grants, but also contracts, the executive branch has tremendous and in some cases absolute authority over the distribution of those funds. And as a result, it gives executive branch actors, and namely the president, a real opportunity to do what, his, what the president's colleagues in Congress do every time, and that is 
target those funds for gain. So, so walk, walk us through, through a little bit how federal grants are distributed. This is a process that I think people always hear about, but don't don't really understand and, and, and would therefore have trouble understanding exactly what you're referring to. Is there an example of a, a federal grant that could help us understand how this process actually works and, and that, uh, you know, the, the strict instructions and, and formula that we think of as attached to legislation is maybe a little bit more flexible than, than we might be led to believe? Sure. So there are a variety of grant programs in the United States that, that function in uh, uh, tremendously different ways. So, so as an academic, one of the areas that we are most familiar with is the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation puts out a request for proposals, which is standard in every federal grant program, uh, competitive federal grant program that exists. The agency lets the public know that funding is available. And within the request for proposals, there's usually guidelines for what the agency is expecting, who can apply, when they can apply, what they can use funds for, et cetera. It's true for uh, the political science program at NSF, uh, or at least when the political science program was funded at NSF. (laughs) Right. It's true in the Department of Agriculture and rural development and uh, all the areas of of, um, uh, agriculture funding there are. It's true at Homeland Security. It's, It's frankly true um, across the government. And so the request for proposals sometimes have very specific guidelines in them. Sometimes they have very broad guidelines in them for how the funding can be used. And uh, applicants can apply. And, of course, the, the RFPs, the request for proposals, always describe who the applicant can be. In some cases, it can be individuals or universities. In other cases, it has to be a request um, put through by a state government or by a municipal government. Um, And those requests, I'm sorry, those applications are then sent to the proper office that they're supposed to go to. And uh, grants are evaluated using a variety of systems. At NSF, um, of course, they use peer review. In other uh, agencies, they also use peer review. In other agencies, it's a very internal bureaucratic process. And as as the grants process unfolds, there are areas where appointees and other actors can adjust the criteria or adjust the expectations um, for what applicants should look like. Um, they can interfere, It's in, maybe interfere is a strong word, but they can play a role in the peer review process. And then at the end of the day, in a lot of agencies, a political appointee has the final uh, decision on yes or no. Anyone who's received an NSF grant knows that the program officer says, we've recommended your, your grant for um, approval, and now it needs to get approved by someone else. And, and oftentimes that someone else is a political appointee. It's true at NSF. Um, it's true um, in a variety of federal agencies. And what it does is it positions appointees centrally. And in most cases, um, those appointees uh, depend wholly on the president to, to remain in their jobs. And, and so you can imagine, at least theoretically, and that's how the book moved forward, theoretically, the president has at least an opportunity to influence the process in a direct or indirect way. Now, now some of what your book is about is trying to understand the bureaucracy in a way that we, we haven't normally understood it. 
Um, and so I'd like to talk a little, little bit about um, um, some of how you how you measured things how, and how others have measured it. So what does it mean for an agency to be politicized? This this seems to run so counter to what we assume about the bureaucracy as characteristically nonpartisan. So tell us about how how an agency might be politicized and, and what some of your findings tell us about how this relates to where money is allotted. Sure. So. Politicization conceptually centers around the idea of the place or the agencies or the offices in which political appointees exert more influence within the agency than do uh, careerists. And so there are a variety of ways to measure politicization, to measure the influence of political appointees, or at least that concept. And and what I, um, uh, the measure that, that I, I prefer the most, and, and I think a lot of people prefers, is one by uh, my dissertation chair, Dave Lewis, and that measures the uh, ratio of political appointees to career-level managers. So it's not to measure um, every career-level bureaucrat in the agency, because frankly, management is what matters. And it looks at that ratio, and each agency is assigned a, a, a ratio number. Well, there are a variety of ways you can imagine in which appointees can influence the process, but there are also a variety of different types of appointees. And so one of the things that the book is sensitive to is that not every appointee necessarily serves the president. So you have agencies that are structured as commissions, where we currently have Bush appointees who hold those uh, 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 roles still. And so I try to divide agencies up, not just according to level of politicization, but what that what those political appointees might tell us. And so the book has some pretty interesting findings with regard to that. And so in, in some areas of the book, we find that uh, political appointees have, where, where political appointees have a, a more prominent role in the agency leadership, uh, the president is able to use federal grants to advance his electoral interests. That is, federal grants are targeted to swing states, particularly at opportune times in advance of elections. But that relationship tends to go away when you move to commission structures. Uh, agencies that are designed by uh, as commissions where uh, commissioners have fixed and staggered terms, there's party balancing requirements. In those agencies, the relationship tends to fall apart. And that's sort of the design of those agencies is to rebuff political power. And it, it turns out that that's the case. The, the opposite, however, is in non-commission agencies, in, in independent agencies and in cabinet agencies, uh, the president has tremendous influence over the distribution of these discretionary funds, and, and he uses them to advance those interests. And, and what, what, what are those interests? How, how similar are these interests to the motivations of a member of Congress? Um, we know that so the electoral timeline for a president is, is different, so... Is is the are the ambitions and motivations do they work in similar ways in terms of how presidential pork is is given out versus how congressional pork is given out? Yeah, they absolutely work in similar ways. So something when we have, whenever we think of the president, we think of him as such a unique actor in the system, and in many ways he is. But at the end of the day, the president is an elected official who is. Uh, interested in his, first his election, then his re-election, and then the election of his party uh, to succeed him in office. And as a result, presidents try to do everything they can to ensure electoral success. The irony in political science is this. 
we, we don't necessarily think of the president as uh, uh, what we think of as a congressman, a primarily election-driven individual. But at the same time, we look around us and we see presidential campaigns starting earlier and earlier. Um, individual presidential campaigns or candidates' campaigns costing over a billion dollars now. And we constantly remark about the president on the campaign trail or the president campaigning for this or that. And so I took a step back and I said, well, if we think of the president in in the media as an election-driven individual, we have to think of him in the White House as an election-driven individual, and that has to that has to include pork barrel politics. And so what I argue in the book, which is a, a bit of a different claim for sure, is that in a lot of ways presidents are no different than members of Congress in terms of having electoral interests and using the powers of their office to advance that. Now, now, towards the end of the book, um, and I think you're sort of alluding to some of this now, you, you strike a somewhat pessimistic tone about electoral and, and um, spending reform. Um, is, there, is there nothing that can be done here, or is what can, uh, could be done just so unlikely that it's not worth dwelling on too much? Well, I, I think that's right. There's a lot that, uh, there are a lot of things that theoretically could be done. Um, but, but achieving them is politically uh, just not feasible. So one of, the argu- one of the arguments in the book and what is shown empirically is that in agencies, as I said before, that are uh, designed to have a commission format, those tend to be far less political in terms of the distribution of funds. Well, then you could, you could redesign uh, federal agencies to be commission structures or or at least have the agencies that allocate funds to be commissions. But the problem is it doesn't just hurt the president then, it also hurts Congress. Congress benefits in terms of presidential pork as well. Um, uh, We find that different uh, constituencies in Congress fare quite well in the area of discretionary funds. Um, And and uh, that relationship falls apart in commissions as well. So, a Congress that wants to get rid of presidential influence over the distribution of funds also has to get rid of the congressional influence over the distribution of funds, and that frankly just won't happen. And so as a result, we have a system in which political officials um, have a role in administration, and uh, for the most part, Americans support that because they're very quick to judge nameless, faceless, unelected bureaucrats who they don't want having any influence in Washington. Well, the alternative to that is having your elected officials have that um, influence, and they do in pretty substantial ways, and frankly, they're going to in substantial ways into the future. This is just a really interesting book, and uh, one that I enjoyed and uh, really uh, learned a lot about, uh, sort of a a piece of of the presidency that I've looked at a bit, but not nearly in the uh, level of detail you have. What's next from you? Um, This book is out. Uh, You described at the start um, your your appointment. Uh, Is there another book project uh, on your agenda, or is there something else that's going to be filling your time? So uh, there, I have a few projects right now uh, that are out there. One is looking at uh, presidential appointments from an administrative perspective. That is understanding how uh, the Office of Presidential Personnel um, is functioning and how, it, how well it is done under President Obama, how that compares to uh, prior administrations, and what kinds of changes can be introduced to the appointments process, not just for Senate-confirmed appointees, but for the thousands of other appointees who don't require 
uh, Senate confirmation, but who have dramatic influence in uh, the daily affairs of, of the administrative state. So I'm working on that um, actually as we speak, and I, I, I left that work to, to come and do this interview. In terms of other areas, what I'd like to do is put presidential pork to work. And so looking in some areas of the country that are underperforming um, or areas of the country that are overperforming uh, with regard to the findings of the book and try to get a better understanding of uh, what's going on specifically. So actually, I've, I've done a little work so far with Nevada. Nevada is a state we should expect to do quite well with federal funding. They have the Senate Majority Leader in their, uh, in their state. They're a swing state. Um, they uh, were hit hardest by the recession, so they have real economic need, but they've actually done pretty terribly in terms of receiving federal funds, and one of the reasons for that is the administrative structures that exist in the state level. So sort of taking presidential pork's findings and understanding what's happening within states that either help or hinder those conclusions, uh, that's what I think would be uh, the, the next step, at least with this project, and, and finally, I, I'm just in the early stages of getting a project off the ground, which might, might be the next book project, though, though we'll see, that looks at um, uh, presidential parties and presidential campaigns and understanding how they're evolving and how the uh, grassroots efforts um, that exist within these parties ends up filtering up the food chain to the candidates and the prospective candidates and how what the candidates want themselves filter back down the food chain to the uh, grassroots. And so I'm doing a few research trips this summer to get a better handle, to do a little bit of research on that. Sounds really interesting, and uh, as interesting, I, I hope, as, as the current book, which is Presidential Pork, uh, White House Influence Over the Distribution of Federal Grants, as I mentioned earlier, published uh, this year by Brookings Institution Press. John, thank you very much for your time today. Steve, thanks for having me.